The reading today is from Revelation 7, verses 9 to 17. The great multitude in white robes. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory, and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength to our God and forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. How does it all end? Is that a question that you've ever asked yourself? And I don't even mean how will this sermon end, but how will the story of the world resolve itself? When we watch a film, we know that the script writers usually have about an hour and a half to tie up all those loose ends and resolve the story. So even when the most tortuous of thrillers seems very unpredictable, we know that everything will have to be tied up within that time. But reality is different from a film. Because we're characters in the middle of a story. And while we have some idea of how the story started, we don't know how or when the story ends. We don't even know how close to the end we are. People sometimes say that while the rest of the Bible is about the past, the book of Revelation is a bit different because it's about the future. Now, of course, this isn't really true. Many parts of Scripture are about the past, the present, and the future because they tell us what God has done. They give us guidance in our present lives, and they assure us of Jesus' return and God's 
final victory. The Gospels, for example, contain all of that. But it is true to say that Revelation is the only book of the Bible that is exclusively about the future. Because it belongs to a genre known as apocalyptic. Now in this sermon series on the Bible, there have been several discussions of genre. A genre is basically a kind of literature, a particular way of writing. And this word apocalyptic is one that has passed into our everyday language. And it has the meaning in our everyday language of being a world-ending disaster. There's even a genre of apocalyptic movies that imagine such disasters. Maybe you don't want to watch one right now. But this isn't actually what the word apocalypse means in the Greek language, which is the language in which the New Testament is written. Because funnily enough, the word apocalypse means revelation. And that's why the book of Revelation has the title that it does, because in Greek it is the book of the apocalypse. Now, it is true that revelation is about how this world, as we know it, comes to an end, and how a new world is renewed in its place. But Revelation is first and foremost what it says on the tin. It is a book of Revelation that reveals God and his son, Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation was the only book of the Bible that I read when I was a teenager and I'd lost interest in God and I'd lost interest in the church. But one day, somebody said to me, oh, you shouldn't read the book of Revelation. It's a really dangerous book to read. And so I immediately found a Bible, (laughs) and that night stayed up reading under the covers the book of Revelation. Now, the reason why people say that Revelation is a dangerous book is because there's a long history of people misinterpreting it and misinterpreting it in disastrous ways. History is littered with examples of Christians who thought they had decoded the mysterious language of this book and were now convinced that they knew exactly when Jesus would be returning and when and how the events that are described in the book of Revelation would take place. They all turned out to be wrong and often did a great deal of damage to people's faith in the process. Now, the first thing that you will notice if you take the trouble to read the book of Revelation and you also make a note of the order in which things are happening, you try to construct a chronology, is that, well, you can't. It doesn't actually work to do that. In the same way that some films and TV shows cut and splice the past, the present, and the future, um, what would be technically known as a non-linear narrative, so the book of Revelation seems to do something similar. And I've read a lot of Bible commentaries on Revelation because it's a book that I find particularly interesting. 
And none of those commentaries seem to be able to resolve this problem in a satisfactory way. So what I'd say to you is that Revelation is not to be taken as a history of the future. And it certainly isn't to be received as a book of predictions. It's not like one of those astrological almanacs that tells you exactly what is going to happen and when. So if we can't use Revelation as a guide to the future, what is this book about and how should we use it? Well, if you haven't read the book of Revelation, I'm going to sum up the story arc, the plot, if you like, in eight words. Things will get worse before they get better. And as Sylvia has mentioned, these are words that have a particular resonance in our current situation. As I speak this morning, I'm conscious that in many countries in Europe, services have been cancelled and churches have been closed. There's even the possibility that Easter will, in some ways, not be able to take place this year which is almost incredible, and I hope and pray that that does not come to pass. But it is our duty as followers of Jesus, as followers of a healing God, to protect the vulnerable by, by following the advice of the expert epidemiologists. And in these extraordinary circumstances, which are unprecedented in modern times, certainly in my lifetime, it's imperative that we base our behavior not on a desire to protect ourselves, although that's perfectly reasonable, but on protecting the community at large and that we adhere to the public health advice that we're given. But at the same time, I am conscious that distancing ourselves from friends and loved ones seems to go against the very essence of Christian community, against our hearts, and against the idea of encountering Christ in one another. But in this season, for what I pray will be a short time, we can best show our love and care for one another by taking that step back from physical contact. What is in no doubt is that we will all require God's grace for what lies ahead for our nation in the coming weeks and months. When he suffered on the cross, Jesus endured separation from his Father. And it seems that this Lent, that is the road that God is asking us to walk, as nations are cut off from one another and quarantines are imposed, I'm sure we've all been shocked by the extraordinary headlines that we've been seeing over the past few days. But God remains faithful, and we remain the church. We remain at the body of Christ, regardless of whether or not in the coming weeks we will be able to meet together for worship, and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So things will get worse before they get better. 
And while we may see this in the short spans of our lives, in the times that we live through, Revelation is about the much larger cosmic struggle between the forces of good and the forces of evil. And spoiler alert, it is good and God who has the final victory. But when we read the book of Revelation, we must remember that this book is an attempt to put down in writing prophetic visions and dreams. Now, I'm at a disadvantage here because the gift of prophecy is not one that I personally have received. So I don't have personal experience of this. But people with this gift today often receive individual vivid images from God. They then have to interpret those images or ask the Holy Spirit for the gift of interpretation to help them to understand them. And when God speaks to people in dreams, as he still does today, he communicates in dream imagery. And of course, that's symbolic. It's open to interpretation. And it's very different from the way that we experience everyday reality. And I suspect that one of the reasons why God does this is to force us to go beyond just the clothes in which the message is dressed up, the images in which the message is conveyed, but to go to the heart of that message that God is communicating. And on one level, the book of Revelation is a response to specific events that were occurring in the late first century AD when this book was written. We know that the author was called John, although he probably wasn't the same John who wrote the Gospel of John and the letters of John. And we know that John wrote Revelation on the Greek island of Patmos, which is on the screen. Revelation was almost certainly the last book of the Bible to be written, and it was written against a background of Roman persecution of the early church. Now, many biblical scholars think that the infamous beast in Revelation 13, whose number is 666, is a reference to the Emperor Nero, who covered the bodies of followers of Jesus with pitch, set them alight, and hung them on crosses to illuminate his dinner parties. But the thing is that in prophetic language, something can mean more than one thing. And it would be a mistake to try to identify this beast or the Antichrist, also mentioned in the book of Revelation, or the false prophet with individual people in history. Because these are types. These are kinds of people who recur throughout history, who will persecute the church, who will try to undo the work of Christ, and who will tell lies about the gospel. Revelation's message to us is to watch out and be on the alert for those who oppose the gospel. And it's not an invitation to get drawn into endless speculation about how Revelation corresponds to current events. And that's a way that some Christians can get lost and drawn away from the message of the gospel 
because they become preoccupied with this idea of interpreting revelation. Because if we're searching for a history of the future, we won't find it in the book of Revelation. But if we're searching for deeper answers about how the struggle between good and evil will play out, about how it all ends, then Revelation is the place to look. It can be difficult to believe when we look at the world around us that good will triumph over evil. All we seem to see is deepening chaos, selfishness, greed, abject failure to deal with the most pressing problems faced by our society and our planet. Again and again, we make the same mistakes. No generation seems to learn from the errors of the past and always self-interest seems to come before humanity, before compassion. The message of the gospel and the figure of Jesus Christ stand out in ever starker contrast against a gathering darkness. And our courage falters as we hesitate to live out or proclaim the good news that we claim to represent. But we are called to make this world ever more like the kingdom of God because it is his kingdom. God is sovereign over all. But Revelation tells us that God's kingdom meets with deadly resistance and that the final victory will not be won without a spiritual fight. Yet that victory will come. Jesus Christ will return to judge the living and the dead, and this time in glory. And the dead will be raised to eternal life, to live in God's presence forever. The final chapter of Revelation gives us a glimpse of eternal life lived with God in the heavenly Jerusalem. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The words with which this book and the whole Bible come to an end are an invitation. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Because there is nothing more to say 
that will not be fulfilled when Jesus returns in glory. In the meantime, until we have direct knowledge of God face to face, nothing can be added to Scripture. Nothing can be taken away. The revelation to John is the last new information that God revealed about himself. And no one in all the years since has said anything new about God. People have said many beautiful things about God, but nothing new. And if they have, they are guilty of false prophecy. Because the God we worship is the God of the Bible. Everything we need to know about God, everything that we can know about God, at least in this life, is found in this book. Now that's not to say that the Holy Spirit is not alive and active in this world right here and now. Of course, he is. But scripture remains the trustworthy anchor of our faith, guiding our inter interpretation of what the Spirit is telling us. And I think it's a little ironic that this book, that is perhaps the most difficult to interpret of all books in the Bible, ends with this forceful assertion of the trustworthiness of Scripture, that these are words that we can trust. Because the truth is to be found within it if we know how and where to look. So to return to that question that I asked at the start of this sermon, how does it all end? Reading the book of Revelation will bring you into contact with a vivid prophetic vision of the struggle between God and the forces that oppose him. But Revelation's answer to that question is ultimately a simple one. How does it all end? It ends with him. Please, if you'd like to, I'd ask you now to join in praying with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word and for the prophetic vision of John in the book of Revelation. We thank you that we have still been able to come together to worship you today. Give us the grace to accept and endure the many trials that lie between this present age and the final coming of your kingdom. And in these days of disease and danger, we earnestly seek your protection and help for us, for our loved ones, for all who may be afflicted, and for the emergency services and medical professionals at the front line of the struggle against this new illness. Keep us faithful to your way of love as we strive to protect those most vulnerable and cover us with the shadow of your wings. All this we ask in the powerful name of your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.